it's actually surprisingly rare for a nonprofit to lose its tax exempt status, mainly because the, the budgets of nonprofits are so low that it's not worth it for the federal government to go after them or even the state government. But they only go after it when it's very suspicious or fraudulent type activity. And even there's this one group, this group of family members who were trying to figure out how to pay for their kids' college education. And so they created this foundation, a nonprofit tax exempt foundation, and donated their own personal money to this foundation, tax-free and got tax exemption from it, and then gave out college scholarships. But all the recipients of the college scholarships were family members. They were sort of going around the system and basically reducing how much they're going to have to pay. Like they could count it as a charitable donation giving to this foundation, and then the foundation went back and gave it gave it to their kids to pay for college. And in that sense, by that definition, it wasn't serving the public good. It was clearly a money laundering operation to make sure to get tax-free college education or to make it a charitable donation to get college to pay for tuition. But in general, I guess what's surprising for me is that it's actually fairly rare for a nonprofit to lose its tax exempt status unless you do something incredibly egregious. If you just sort of are sloppy and just overwhelmed with your operations and you sort of forget to do something, the government's not going to come in and say, okay, you're done, you're out. It's more unless you're doing something intentionally illegal is when you'll get it. So, But a lot of people fear like, oh no, I'm going to lose my tax exempt status because I didn't fill out this form or file this paperwork. It's actually pretty rare for, for that to happen. Yeah. That case you talked about family, did they like go to jail? No, they basically they had to pay the taxes that they should have paid. That's it? Yep. So, and we're going to learn about this. The nonprofit sector, the reason it exists, it's supposed to exist autonomous from the government. So the reason why you don't have to pay taxes is because, especially in the U.S., they want to give the freedom for people to set up organizations that are free from government interference. And so that's why you can have the NRA or even the KKK. It's the freedom of association of bringing people together. But if you're going to get the tax-exempt benefits and use them, you have to abide by sort of the rules. You won't go to jail. But, and we'll get into some more of the nonprofit laws that relate to the nonprofit sector. That's, that's a theme that's going to come up throughout this class is the whole topic of salaries. Because that, I mean, a lot of you have said in your memos, like, well, how can I do this as a career? Why, why do nonprofits get paid for less? Or why can't nonprofits make a profit so that the people can get paid more? A lot of things along that theme. And in a sense, I'm, I'm viewing you all as people who are going to be leading nonprofits. And so you set the budget for your nonprofit. And my sense is we lack the vision and the ambition behind what our nonprofit it could be. And I guarantee if you go to a funder and say, you know, here's our budget and here's what we're going to pay the executive director and, and the CFO and, and the other people working for our organization, and you show a salary that's commensurate with the private sector, what you can communicate is saying, hey, listen, we want the best. We want to recruit the best people, most qualified people for this position. And so we're going to set our salary at a level that's commensurate with the private sector so that we can be competitive and we're going to provide the same amount of benefits, vacation time, and all this sort of full package that you would if you're going to go work in the private sector. And the idea is most of the funders and the people that you're going to be approaching work in the private sector. And so they get it. They understand. And they understand the value of highly qualified employees. But it, oftentimes, we 
sort of think, well, we shrink our vision or we shrink what's possible and then we undercut what we're able to do because we have high turnover of employees or we have people who stay for maybe three or four years and then exit into the marketplace. So the idea is to think through, this is a profession, this is something that demands professionalism, and so we want to pay people at a level that's commensurate with that. But so often we sort of think, oh, well, we're going to reduce everything because we're a nonprofit or because you know we don't want to look like we're paying people tons amount of money. So that's a theme that will continue to come up, but I think it's important to just keep hammering that home because if you want your particular organization to thrive and be successful, you need to be able to recruit the best employees and not just get the ones who couldn't get a job. And we we're like, okay, well, then I'll go work in this sector. So I'm going to cover the remaining part of the theory part, and then we're going to go into the worksheet that you guys worked on. So some people would ask about macro theories versus micro theories. Most of what I'm going to talk about is the macro theory, because a lot of the micro theory is going to play out in your nonprofit startup, and just sort of the day-to-day -day details of running a nonprofit and the theories of how do you recruit volunteers, how do you brand and market your organization. What I want to do with this section and what I started on yesterday and we're going to continue with is these macro theories. What the macro theories allow you to do is think about the sector from like 30,000 feet in the air and be able to look at the big picture because so often we get just buckled down into our little nitty-gritty day-to-day things. We're like, well, how do I fix this or how do I figure out that? And we forget the big picture, how all these parts are interrelated. And there's a concept in science called systems theory, and it's very widespread in the sense of that in every discipline, they're beginning to sort of think through in terms of systems, and systems are basically the interrelationship of components. So how the little sector that you're in is related and affected by the broader sector, the broader systems of society. So it could be the ecosystem, like the environment is one system, or the political system, or or the financial system. And so it's beginning to think in terms of how these major systems influence your organization or influence the nonprofit sector. And I'm going to show a video that it's, the guy's pretty dry. I think he's British who discusses this. But the reason why I like this video is it gives a really clear overview of what systems theory is. And then we'll go into how this specifically relates to the nonprofit sector. But this is system theory. Based upon the model of a system, let's start from the beginning. We can understand the world as things, that is, parts or components, and their relations, that is, how they are connected or fit together. So take a car, for example. It is made up of parts, car parts, such as engine, wheels, and so on. These parts are put together or organized in a specific way so as to make them function as a vehicle of transport. Now we call a group of things that are not organized in this way a set. So we'd call a group of cups on a table a set of cups because unlike the parts of a car, they have not been designed to serve some collective function. This group of cups is simply the sum of its parts. We would describe them by describing the individual properties of each car and this would tell us everything we need to know about them. This approach to describing things is called analysis or reductionism. Reductionism is a traditional approach taken within modern science that tries to describe complex phenomena in terms of their individual parts. Now take the human body that is highly organized through a complex set of relations between its parts. Out of the arrangement of these parts in a specific way, we get the overall functioning of the living organism. Because the parts are so strongly defined by their connections and function within the body as an entirety, 
properly describe the parts, we need to first understand the functioning of the whole body. This approach to describing things, that is, that we can best describe things by understanding their place within the functioning of the whole they are a part of, is called synthesis, and synthesis is the foundations of systems thinking. Thus, we have two different approaches to describing things. On the one hand, analysis that is interested in describing the individual components, and synthesis that talks about the relationship between these components and their functioning as a whole. Okay, so now that we know a bit about systems thinking, let's put our newfound knowledge to use. Say a car manufacturing company has employed us to design their next great model. Now we could take two different approaches to this problem, applying analytical thinking or our friend systems thinking. If we approach the problem from a traditional perspective, we would start by analysing the car and looking for ways to optimise it. We might come away with a design that minimises the car's drag by reducing its height by a few centimetres to increase its fuel efficiency. Now if we apply systems thinking to this problem, we would start by identifying the car's function, that is personal transportation, and the system it is part of, the transportation system. From this perspective, we might not even need to design a new car at all but end up designing some service that connects pre-existing resources to provide the same desired functionality. From this example, we can see how system thinking is often applied when the current paradigm or way of doing things has reached its limit and gives us a fresh perspective on things. System thinking is the beginning of another closely related area called systems theory that goes on to give us a whole suite of tools for analysing and modelling systems and their interaction dynamics as they evolve over time. So we can wrap up by saying that systems thinking is an emerging paradigm within many areas from science to engineering and business management that presents an alternative to our traditional modern analytical methods of inquiry by emphasizing the need for a more holistic and contextualized understanding of the world. So very dry in the presentation, but the point being that with our tendency as analysts is to think about, okay, my organization and how can I tweak my organization? How can I make my organization more profitable? How can I make my services more effective? And we try to do these little minor tweaks of it when in reality, we could really benefit by pulling back and saying, okay, what's the purpose of our organization? What is our organization trying to accomplish big picture? And how does that fit in to the broader scope of where this organization is situated. And so the idea is to think about, especially as you're thinking about the nonprofit that you're going to start up, thinking about how it fits in to the larger system. So if your nonprofit is related to healthcare, not just thinking about, oh, here's the one service I want to provide, but thinking about, okay, what's the state of the healthcare system in the U.S.? And what are the implications of Obamacare? And how does that system relate to systems, say, in Canada or in Sweden? And thinking about larger scale ideas when you're thinking about your little nonprofit. And so the tendency, we always gravitate towards, let's do little tweakings of our organization. We forget about the interrelatedness of the whole sector. And some of the theories that were talked about in the book is, one is this idea of organizations as open systems. The idea is that your organization doesn't sort of sit independently in society, but it's an open system that is is interacting with all other different parts of the larger system. So you interact with the government system, you interact with mass media, 
you interact with on an international scale. So it's thinking about your organization as an open system that has constant flow in and out of it and ties to a larger system. And so it's just, again, we tend to think about, oh, here's my little organization and how can I make it better? And we forget that it's being heavily impacted by these outside influences. Another one is population ecology is another way of systems thinking. And someone asked about, it was something about competitiveness of nonprofits and why do they have to compete with for-profits? Well, population ecology begins to address this. The population ecology, if you think about an ecosystem, like the environment, think of a forest. And in the forest, there's all these different species that exist, and some are in competition with each other, and some sort of benefit and help each other. Some are poisonous and kill off others. And so in the same way, in the business world or in the organization <laughs> world, there's this environment, the organizational environment. And there's some organizations that will help your organization thrive. There's other organizations that are in direct competition for the resources of your organization. So whether it's financial resources or human resources. So you gotta think about my organization is being planted in a certain ecosystem. And it's good to understand what is this ecosystem this organizational ecosystem that my organization is being planted in, and just thinking about it in terms of the larger environment or the organizational environment that it's situated in. Another idea of systems theory is institutional isomorphism. And so this is a really fascinating concept because it's something that happens subconsciously that organizations mimic <coughs> So if you think about this, if you go to any university in the U.S. and you walk onto campus, there's this striking similarity of how universities are designed. Like there's a quad, and there's big lecture halls, and there's residence halls, and there's dining facilities. Now, it wasn't just by chance that all of these happened to be designed the same way, but really there was a model. Let's say like Harvard <coughs> University was one of the first universities. They designed the university to look a certain way. Harvard was successful, so when the next university got started, they said, well, let's look to see what Harvard did, and let's mimic what they've done. And then you see that it's a ripple effect that you might think you're being innovative or creative, but if you step back and realize, wow, we all look the same, and maybe there's inefficiencies in the way that Harvard designed it, or one of the first organizations in the sector designed it, that isn't really the most effective or efficient. But what we tend to do is we just copy. We match what's already been done. So if you think of whatever organization you're doing, you probably have a picture in your mind of another organization that's already done it, and the tendency is to copy that. And so you almost have to actively resist that temptation, or at least look at it with a very critical eye, because the default is to copy it. And that's not always the most effective. And so that's what institutional isomorphism is. You go into any sector, and there's a lot of mimicking that goes on of how people run businesses. Even startups in Silicon Valley, even though that has only been around for about 15 years, 20 years, the model of what those organizations look like tend to copy each other. And there's problems with that. Not always, sometimes there's good reason for copying, but there's also drawbacks to sort of just passively adopting what the other organizations in your sector have done. 
And then the last part of, of systems theory is this idea of resource dependence. And so resource dependence is this idea that you might come in saying, hey, I want my organization to do this, provide this service. But your funder might come in, he's a big funder, and she says that, hey, I really have a passion sort of for this service, but really I want to do this service. And if this is a big funder and you're dependent on her, then the tendency is that your focus might shift to respond to what your resource or what your funder wants to do. And then you sort of pivot a little bit this way, not too much, but just a little bit. And then over time, you become more and more dependent upon the funder. And so more and more of your activities and services reflect not what your mission is, but what your resource provider's vision and mission is. And the idea is that if you become dependent on these other outside resources, the tendency is to, it's called mission drift, where you shift your focus and it begins to reflect not your mission, but the mission of where your resources are coming from. So it's not just large funders, it could be the government. I mean, a good example would be HIV AIDS prevention. And let's say there's a faith-based group that's getting funding from the government to do HIV AIDS prevention, and their big thing is abstinence and sort of a focus on, let's just deter sexual activity. But then the government comes in and says, well, no, we want to do condom distribution and needle exchange programs, and you have this huge grant from the government, and you're kind of like, uh-oh, what am I going to do as an organization? Because what they're asking me to do is something that goes against what my mission or vision is for this organization. And so there's a tension, but it's driven by this resource dependence. So in a sense, the, where you're getting your resources from can drive a lot of what you're doing as an organization. So again, all four of these are examples of where if you just sort of sit there and think, here's my little organization as an isolated unit, you'll miss out on all these external factors that influence the effectiveness and success of your organization. So yesterday and today just sort of gives a broad picture of the theories related to the nonprofit sector, but these theories really relate much more broadly than just nonprofits, but it just happens to be our sector is the nonprofit sector. But this really applies to whatever organization and whatever field you're going into. And then for the remainder of the class is more the micro theories, the sort of the nuts and bolts of running a nonprofit. What I want to transition to is going through the exercise of how you work in groups because in about 15 minutes we're going to be forming you into teams but I thought it'd be helpful to kind of know everyone's different in how they approach teamwork and working in teams and groups and it's helpful first to know how you're oriented sort of like oh yeah I guess this is the way that I approach problems or tasks or group work but then it's also then helpful for the other people in your team to know how you operate so they're not like man why is this person such a stickler for details and like so time and task oriented and then the other one saying well why is this person so just visionary and pie in the sky and kind of never landing the plane well both are valuable both can be frustrating but it's helpful if you sort of know oh, okay this is this person's strengths and this is some of the weaknesses or drawbacks that come with it so what I want you to do is so you're sort of in your areas of orientation and I want you to pair up with like four people in your area. So find four other North people and pair up. Find four other sort of like-minded, I don't know what's over here, sounds East. And I want you to go through the questions on the sheet. And you guys might not have them, so I'm going to rewrite them up here. But basically, pair up into four, and I want you to talk about the strengths of your style, 
and the limitations of your style and the style that you are least amenable to. Like, you know what you are, and then when you read the other ones, you're like, oh yeah, that kind of person frustrates me, or that's that's a challenging person to work with who's like a southerner or something like that. So pair up with the group support and talk about the strengths of the style and the limitations of the style. Okay, so I want to I wanna hear from you guys. Basically, I want each orientation to sort of say, okay, we're the people from the north, and here's what we're known for, uh, we're the people from the south, and I want to hear, I just want to, so that everyone sort of has a good sense of what the different orientations are, so we'll start at, what is this, north? North. North, okay. So you guys, can someone describe to the rest of the class what northerners are like? Yeah. So, we do it. We're just task-oriented, doing things non-stop, and just to get things done, and then have a problem with something, we go back and fix it later whenever we feel that it needs to be fixed. But the more things we get done, the more we feel accomplished. Big risk takers, we don't really like to sit back and think things through before it happens, just going for it and seeing what happens after that. Cool. So you probably want a northerner on your team, at least one northerner, so that you actually get it done. And then back there, south, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So we like to know about everybody's feelings so we can take that into account. So some of the strengths that we said is we're very considerate, we're compromising too, we want to make sure that everybody's is heard. But that also leads to some limitations because it might be time consuming or it's hard to solve something perfectly and having everybody be happy with what we come up with. Okay, yeah. So it's the peacekeepers and making sure that everyone's okay with, before we make this decision, before we move forward with this action, is everyone okay with this? And so it's almost like you guys shouldn't be sitting so close to each other because you're like the bulldozers and you get the people holding up the white flag saying, wait a minute. So, okay, and the Easterners. Who else um, describe the Easterners? Um, I can't speak for all Easterners, but this group over here, we thought, or we consider ourselves to be really thorough and kind of patient with the brainstorming process. Mm -hmm. So trying to kind of apply some of those macro system thought processes to how we approach a task. So making sure that we're detailed, but we're looking at the big picture and we're figuring out all of the different relationships and interactions that we're going to have within the community that we want to serve. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Very good. So the detailed people and then the Westerners. How would you describe the Western? Well, we split into two groups too, but our group decided that we're more communicative because we want to make sure every detail is talked through before we move forward. Mm -hmm. So you have to have good communication so everybody kind of like puts their input on it. Mm -hmm. So everyone, you want to make sure everyone's contributing to the process. So it's interesting that the class kind of divided up pretty equally distributed amongst these four categories. So there isn't like, IU doesn't just recruit all northerner types, but like you can be a high functioning person and be a, a big team contributor, but be of a different orientation. Where, just in your everyday life or organizations that you've worked for, where do you see some of these characteristics, where have you seen these characteristics played out in yourself or with people that you work with? Yeah. I'm extremely organized and I get kind of like anxious when things are like, not makes me sound like OCD, but things are out of place. It's but, okay. Like, You're focused. Right. I appreciate when things are in the right place and I get really love alphabetizing things. 
people who are like, I'll just show up, <laughs> and I'm sure I'll figure it out. <laughs> and so, and in a sense, that's just, that's how you roll, and that's how you approach things. But the tricky thing is, is when you're working in teams, because then that's where, where friction happens, because there's some people, you know, I'm going to say the first assignment's due September 13th. And people already have that on their calendar, and they're already going to start working on it. And other people are like, September 13th, okay, well, I have until September 12th to not even worry about it. <laughs> and if you're working on a team, and you're all collectively responsible, that can create tension, because Westerners are going to be like, okay, let's get this done, and the Northerners are going to be like, lagging behind, in a sense. In a sense, they still do it, but yeah. I'm trying to put my own, like, direction down, like, north or whatever, like, but just, like, how can, like, go poorly in like nonprofits. My mom had this like kind of like anti-bullying nonprofit and we some like we had team volunteers and they were holding signs outside of like our local like frozen yogurt shop and it's like punk middle schoolers grabbed the sign and ran away with it and uh -huh. I like bolted after that I grabbed it and I started like yelling when we're just, like, bullying them. <laughs> well, like no I mean they I mean like they were being punks and then my mom was like oh, yeah, it's like not the message we're sending <laughs> So your, your personality came out in that. So that's good. Any other people where you see, especially knowing yourself and working in groups where you've seen it come out? Yeah. Well, the summer during my internship, it was at a nonprofit. It was a lot of like event planning. We're planning like a gala. And I'm like a big picture person. So I like have what the gala's going to look like and like how it's set up. And then my boss is just like having me do all of this like small detail stuff. Stuff that I like never thought about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was like such a like, whoa. And was that frustrating or more eye-opening or? I think it was more eye-opening. It was kind of frustrating at the beginning. I was like, well, I feel like I should be better. Like, I feel like you're doing a bad job. But then I was like, well, this is like, supposed to be a learning thing. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah, I've seen two very different personalities. Like one of the places I volunteer and you've got the one person who does like the development work and the business side and then you've got your youth program coordinator. Those two to me are just the exact opposite mm -hmm. and how lax one can be and free flowing and yeah. the other one being so precise. So yeah. It's interesting to see the two different personalities. Sure. Yeah. And some of it then is delegating responsibilities of like, okay, if you know some people are particularly good at this type of task, just saying, okay, I trust you, you go and do this and you go do this one. Part of it is also being a good team player of like, okay, I know my tendency is this, 
Sometimes it's a strength, but when I do it in overkill, it's a, it's a strength out of balance, and it becomes a weakness or a liability. And so a lot of it is sort of recognizing, okay, this is who I am, and when I come to a team, these are the strengths that my posture brings, but if I kind of go overboard on it, I'm going to drive my team crazy. And also, you're not just one of these. Like, you probably would pick one as your strong one, and then there's probably a close number two that's there as well. So you're not like, in a sense, all Southerner, but your lead foot probably is Southern, but then you could probably pick one of the other directions and say, but I'm also, I have tendencies towards this as well. And when you are working on team projects, this is where this comes out more, because obviously as an individual, it doesn't matter how you approach your work, because at the end of the day, it's, it's up to you. But with teams, is the reason why we do an exercise like this or other personality things is ultimately in working with teams. And so we're going to break up into, begin to form the teams. And the way we're going to do this is I put around the room the different sort of areas that you might start a nonprofit. And some of you have said that you already have an idea for a nonprofit. And so what I want to do is give those people a chance to sort of say, hey, here's what I'm thinking. Here's rough sketches of what I'm thinking. Or maybe I've already gone down the road of starting a nonprofit and I want to bundle it into this class. And my general sense is, if there is people like that in this room, it'd be to your advantage to join that team or that person if, if like it's a topic area that relates somewhat to you, because it'll help you versus starting from scratch of like, okay, I want to do performing arts, but I have no idea. Whereas if there's someone who sort of has some rough skeleton ideas of it, then it's like, oh, okay, yeah, let's go do that. So what I'm gonna do is start with the people just sort of saying, here's a rough sketch of what I'm thinking of doing, and then after each of those people have shared, I'm going to let you guys sort of go to your part of the room or just sort of see, like, yeah, I definitely want to do something related to education, so you can gravitate over there, and you're going to find other people who want to do education, and you're going to form a team. So the teams can only have five people. They have to have five people. They can't have any more or less. But issue areas can have more than one team. So if you go over to environmental stuff and there's like 10 people there, then that's fine. You're just, there's going to be two teams for environmental, or you're going to be in environmental, and you're going to have four people, you need to recruit someone to come onto your team. So you might have to like send people out and find someone. But basically, it'll, it'll all shake down into these teams. So any questions before we get started? Okay, and does anyone have ideas of sort of skeleton ideas of nonprofits they want to start? Yeah. Uh, do you want me to share it? Yeah. Okay. So it's kind of regarding like mentorships is really the main theme, because I feel like in order to bring people out of like undesirable circumstances, the best way is to mentor them and educate them out of it. Uh -huh. So my idea is sort of a, it's like a, a bar where people, and it doesn't have to be necessarily an actual bar, it could just be something that like a cafe or bar hosts on uh -huh. certain nights, where mentors can, like people who are well established in like the professional field or, you know, just being an entrepreneur and like, you know, well off can come. They come to this bar and they pay sort of a premium. So they're kind of tiering the cost structure of the, of the drinks. And then the people who want to be mentored come in and they buy you know, cheaper drinks and cheaper food. And so it's just a place where people can come and you're identified as a mentor, someone wanting to be mentored. And you can have real conversations and develop real relationships with people to just coach each other. You know, like, so then the mentor feels like they're getting fulfilled and the mentee is providing themselves.
itself out of uh -huh. uh, and it's a revenue generating aspect yeah. of it. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah. cool. Very good. So that would probably fit under education or mentoring. There's an mentoring category, but that's a big one. Is mentoring would be a big one. Alice. Okay, so I'm working on a startup business. It's a music education service called Preya. And basically what we do is provide customized lesson plans for students. And we're starting with piano because my team is all piano. But later we want to branch out to all different instruments. And we want to be able to provide real world skills for people to lead creative lives through music. So we're not trying to build like the next world famous pianist or something like that. We're just trying to have people find their own path through our curriculum. And with classical music, there hasn't been that much change since like Mozart's time. But for our curriculum, we have a team of people in our research and development that's going to update our curriculum every six months to follow the trends. So if students don't want to learn it the classical way, we'll teach them in a way that they want to learn. So our thing is unlock the musician within. Very good. Anyone else? Yeah. I'm actually working on something with a friend and it's like a multimedia branding platform. Mm -hmm. So it would kind of be like similar to an artist going to a record label, like signing a contract with them and they set up their promotion deals, like their 360 deals and basically advertise and promote their artists. But instead it's like multimedia, so it can be artists, fashion, clothing line, it can be like literally anything in the media, but they bring their sources to this platform and basically we help expand and promote and advertise their brand mm -hmm. like in places that aren't necessarily promoting it as well. Okay. So in places that with lack of resources for normal marketing and branding, you're gonna come in and sort of set up shop and yeah. provide that. Any other yes? For this semester I'm taking a service writing class and we're gonna be working with I don't like the term like battery bone shelter, like domestic violence shelter, middleway house, and I thought it would be really interesting just because I know I think there's success with this in the past. Teaching people slam poetry, I know uh -huh, that's like uh -huh. super empowering. Yeah. Um, I think like either setting up just kind of like quick workshops of either that or creative writing and then allowing them to like set up something so that they can share it, like mm -hmm. a small event or something like that. So some sort of empowering type. Type of creative, yeah. Yeah. But just teaching a skill again, like music or drawing. I mean, obviously writing is just that, like I feel like music is less subjective mm -hmm. and there's more, you know, hitting the right notes. Sure. Writing it more free form. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, good show. So I'm a psychology major and I really want to go on a therapy or some sort. Thinking of recreational therapy just because everybody's not comfortable just sitting and looking at someone and telling them about their problems. Mm -hmm. So I like the idea of teaching people different skills. I enjoy sewing. So like teaching them how to sew like while they're doing that, learning how to do a different skill, they're also able to talk. They're not focused on me, they're focused on whatever they're doing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's kind of like a reverse psychology happening, I don't know. But providing a, a different, an alternative context for counseling or therapy right. that's safer, yeah. in a sense. Yeah, no, that's good. Yeah, Thomas. Uh, my idea is copying this woman in Indy. She had a restaurant and she was working with the local farmers to get a lot of the produce and meat 
beliefs and all that jazz, and then she opened up a cafeteria that reflected the same type of whole food diet, and that's volunteer-based, so it's kind of like a hybrid. And so people in the community that are low-income or less privileged or whatever the case is, they get to share and have the same foods that people of higher income are eating. To me, it kind of brings those classes together, and I'd like to add an educational component, not only to the lower income or less privileged people to have a better relationship with food, but also an educational component that boosts the chefs or the people that are interested in the actual culinary aspect of the organization. This is good. You guys have good ideas. Now, and in a sense, these ideas are going to morph. So, you know, Alice might say, I want to teach piano or something, but it might morph into, you know, all types of music, or it might morph into a community-based music school or something. But the idea is to begin, okay, I want to do something in this orb or arena and finding other people who want to fit that. So I'm going to let you get up and sort of just mingle around the room. The goal is to find a team of five people, and what you need to do is form a team, and then write down your names and email addresses, and then come up with sort of a rough sketch of what your organization will be. So, good job in getting into teams. There's, there's two people who aren't here today, and there's two teams that have four people in their team, and so basically on Tuesday, those two teams are going to give a pitch to the person, to the, to the two, and they're going to pick which group they want to join. So there's 35 people in this class, so seven teams of five. And the first assignment, so the, like I had said at the beginning, is that there's nine sections for this project, and each one are little bite-sized sections. The first two are due on the 13th, which is like two weeks from now. And uh, these are probably very critical, especially the first one, and that's what the, there's readings on Canvas for this, and it's basically establishing the mission, the vision, and the values of your organization. And this is really critical because it'll help you know what are we doing. Because if you jump into sort of like the finances or the branding or the HR type stuff and yet you don't know what you're doing, it'd be really difficult. So really just sort of using the process of developing your mission and vision and values as a way to sort of as a team crystallize, okay, this is what our organization is about, and then you can fill in the gaps. But so you'll, you'll want to start working on that. It's due on the 13th, and in the in the syllabus, it explains sort of what each of those sections involve. And again, they're really short sections as far as how much you have to write, but I really want it to be high-quality writing. I'm fairly loose with the analytic memos and the personal reflections where there's typos and sort of run-on sentences. Like, that's fine for the memos and reflections. But for this, for this whole startup project packet, it's really, basically, this is something you're going to be presenting to a potential funder. And so they need to, it needs to look professional, it needs to be very polished, and in a sense, like, okay, this is how we would, if we were going to do a portfolio for a funding agency, we want it to look high quality. So that's all, there's readings on Canvas, and basically, before you go, I need a sheet with the names of your team members and the general description of what your organization is going to be. Are there any questions that you guys have with this whole process? Great. And if you have specific questions, you can come up and ask.